Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. And I'm going to read verses 18 through 25, a fitting set of verses for someone in a situation uh, like Colleen is in, and also a, a good set of verses for us as we continue to navigate these interesting times in which we live. So I'd like to ask you to stand, if you would, as I read Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Paul is writing, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's just good to be together in this limited fashion. I recognize how uncomfortable it is to sit there with a mask on, a literal mask, and have to endure that. And, uh, but we appreciate you being here, and it is very good that we can be together, and it is very good just to hear the Word of God read and to listen to it and, and recognize the truth it has for us in these crazy times in which we are living. And I would like us to hold in the front of our minds a few of the eye-catching themes Paul mentions in this wonderful teaching. One theme is glory. going to come back to this throughout. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's a profound statement. He's pointing our focus forward. He's directing our attention forward into the future when God will complete the work that he began in us, in us individually and in us as his people. Another theme is liberation, freedom, if you prefer. Paul says, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. One of the biblical themes that sometimes escapes us is this idea that when the curse fell upon the earth as a result of sin, everything was affected. The whole creation was, in effect, imprisoned by this curse. And what Paul is alluding to here is how the creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And again, Paul is pointing toward the future when all of creation will be liberated from the curse. All of the things we look at right now and say, there's a sign of the curse right there. The day will come, Paul says, when all of the curse and all of the decay will be gone and eradicated. There is also the theme of groaning. It's a good word for us 
in these days in which we're living. Groaning like in the pains of childbirth. Waiting. Eagerly waiting. The creation groaning to be what it was intended to be. We who follow Jesus the King groaning as we wait for God to complete His work in us. Looking forward with anticipation and with longing. It's a beautiful passage for us to consider in these strange times. And for some of us these days, undoubtedly the stressors of life have us near overload. The noise is blaring at the highest decibels these days. The pressure uh, we may feel is relentless. There's just too much information coming at us every second. Too many shoulds, too many should-nots from too many voices. And just when it seemed only a few days ago the end may be in sight, the end seems to have packed up and moved further away. And in such chaotic times, it is good for us to pause, take a deep breath, exhale, and say a four-letter word. A few days ago, I realized that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at these days. From the beginning of March until this very moment right now when we have sort of reconvened, for various reasons, all of our lives in many different and similar ways have been pressed and pulled and stretched and strained. It's been an unprecedented few months and the challenges and the strains look like they're going to continue indefinitely. So now is the time right here, right now, at least for me, to take a deep breath and exhale and say a four-letter word. And the word is hope. Now I can tell, even though I can't see all your faces, that some of you were nervous about that four-letter word thing. Where is he going with that? Hope is another theme in today's passage. Hope that our groaning for glory, for God's flourishing peace, for all to be well, as Angela's story indicated, for the fullness of transformation, Hope that one day all of this will be completely and finally satisfied. And I think the time has come and today is the day for us to remember hope, to cling to hope, and for me to proclaim hope right in the midst of all of the stuff we're dealing with. In the ongoing turmoil then and confusion, loss and fear around COVID-19, I proclaim hope to those who are followers of King Jesus. And our nation's reckoning with the sin of racism and the related hatred, violence, discord, defensiveness, and lack of listening, I proclaim hope to those who follow King Jesus. In the midst of a violent and divisive political climate where name-calling and insults are new every morning, I proclaim hope for those who follow King Jesus. And on the birthday weekend of our nation, with ominous clouds of many kinds hanging in the sky, tensions rising, fears increasing, and anger at epidemic levels, right into the middle of all of this mess, I proclaim hope for those who follow King Jesus. Paul says this in our scripture reading, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan 
inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. For those who follow King Jesus, our present sufferings, however small or great, according to the Apostle Paul, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us one day. Now, does that not blow the mind and almost instantly reframe the present? Paul is saying our current sufferings, whatever they may be, are not even in the same league with the glory that will one day be revealed in those who follow Jesus Christ. And until then, we and all creation groan for that day. We groan to be made right. And in the groaning, we remember hope, we cling to hope, and we proclaim hope. So Christian hope means we confidently expect Jesus the King will fully redeem and restore and make all things right, including us, one day. Or, as the prophet Isaiah said many, many years earlier, in describing this new creation, this world that was coming, this world that had begun but was not yet fully here, the prophet Isaiah said, the whole earth will be full of his glory. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And what Paul is doing in Romans 8 is he's pointing us to that day when the glory of what God is doing in us will be finished and the glory of what God is doing in the world will be finished as, and His shalom will permeate everything. And He's pointing us forward to that day and saying, because that day is coming, you, right now, whatever your circumstance, whatever pressure, whatever difficulty, you have hope. In a word, shalom. God's pervasive peace, God's goodness just spreading out his flourishing in all ways. Now, one of the challenges in talking about hope is that only one letter differentiates it from hype. And maybe as we sit here today, circumstances you're facing, or as you think about the world, you think about our nation, you think about society, Maybe this biblical vision of new creation and this idea of a transformed heart and a transformed world sounds a lot to you like hype. Well, I would urge us to hear the words of the Apostle Paul and the prophet Isaiah, not as mere poetic hyperbole that elicits a response of, oh, that's nice, but as a description of reality in God, with God, and under God. Hear that again. 
that we might hear these words, not as hype, not as mere poetry, but as a description of concrete reality in God and with God and under God. Christian hope means confident expectation that God will do what God has said he will do. So right now, wherever you are, right there in your chair, whisper the word hope. Hear yourself. Say it. Say the word hope. Say it out loud. If you are... um, Thank you. The sound of the word. We need to hear the sound of the word. Hope. Think about the world we're living in. Think about the situation that so many are facing. Think about what's happening in our nation. Think about... Colleen's situation, and just in your mind, out of your mouth, say the word hope. Such a vigorous word. Such a necessary idea right now. Desperately needed. See, hope has a way, when it's grounded in reality, of lifting our heads out of the noise and chaos and confusion and fear, and it recalibrates us to King Jesus. It brings Jesus back into the center of the frame. And when King Jesus is in the center of the frame and our lens focuses in on him, everything else finds its proper place. So on this 4th of July weekend, we are continuing this summer series called Churnings. What's rattling within? What's swirling inside? And I'm here to say that hope is churning in me. So I want to talk about it in three different contexts. First of all, hope for me, or in your case, hope for you. I was recently at the grocery store, usually a venue I find rather relaxing and life-giving, but through all the stuff happening in the world, over the last month or so, it's at least been that long, maybe longer, I felt off. I felt not right. I felt like my soul is not keeping up with all that's going on, and I'm, I'm off. And the off came with me to Rayleigh's the other day. I was hurried, which I'm not normally hurried at the grocery store. Had this low-grade irritation that was being set off by everything, including an overly brown banana. At one point, I backed into a produce cart and nearly ended up on top of a pile of avocados. Turns out they were out of a few things I was looking for, which, how dare they? Did they not know I was coming? When I turned down the coffee aisle, a woman with a cart was stopped right in the middle of the aisle. These are not four-lane highways. There was no way around her. She's sitting there staring at her phone, holding up my hurried shop. And I politely said, excuse me, and she moved over. But to be sure, I was not thinking of her politely at that moment. I just faked it well. I've been off in these times. And for me, and maybe for you, the sustained pressure and chaos caused by the virus, compounded recently, perhaps, for you, by the evil of racism, has exposed, revealed, deeper layers of unformedness in you. Ways that I am unlike Jesus. Impatient, judgmental, angry discontented, to name a few of the tamer issues. Times of difficulty have a rather unique way of revealing the truth about us, pushing the truth about us to the surface. It's there all the time, but times of difficulty and pressure have a way of pushing it to the surface. And we see the truth about ourselves, what we really trust, 
what we really prioritize, what we really ultimately want and long for, and where we actually place our confidence. Paul says those who follow King Jesus are on their way to glory being revealed in and through them. So the Christian life is one of ongoing conversion from the ugly I create to the glory God is creating in and through me. The Christian life then involves many conversions. God reveals the shattered and unformed in us, and we bring this anti-shalom to him and we lay it down so he can transform, he can change those unlike Christ pieces of our character. The whole thrust of the gospel is toward this reality Paul calls maturity in Christ. In the language of Ephesians, maturity is attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Again, mind blow. What does it mean to be a mature follower of Christ? It is to attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That who he is, is being reproduced in me. And it is transforming me. So who I am is beginning to resemble more and more who he is. Language of Ephesians, maturity is being made new in the attitude of our minds. It evokes this idea that our thoughts and our attitudes are to be supple and changeable and transformable. And the way to maturity will be a way of seeing those things changed. The language of Ephesians maturity is putting on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. It's becoming like King Jesus. Maturity is becoming like King Jesus Thinking like him. Going to the grocery store like him. Responding to racism like him. Loving like him. Gentle like him. Humble like him. So part of the hope for the follower of King Jesus is his engagement in our ongoing process. Of transformation. So in the midst of all that's happening, if you've seen the truth about yourself poke through the surface, and every now and then you go, man, ugly. Here's part of our hope today. It's hope knowing Jesus is working to form us into the people we were made to be, and one day the glory will be revealed. For he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. Glory revealed in you, glory revealed in me, glory revealed in us, his people. Christ formed in you, Christ formed in me. So we have hope today in the midst of all this. Because whatever ugly has been revealed, Jesus is not finished with us yet. Let me talk for a minute about hope for the church. Second context I'd like to think of. Let me give a few statistics. In the summer of 2019... Researcher George Barna conducted a survey and found out that two out of five white practicing Christians believe the United States has a race problem. That's deeply disturbing. Because it means 60% of white practicing Christians do not believe the United States has a race problem. And sadly and sinfully, Throughout our nation's history, God and the Bible have sometimes been used 
to justify white superiority and the degrading and mistreatment of people of color. Another statistic, second one. LifeWay Research conducted a recent poll of Protestant pastors and found 53% of them agreed that their, quote, congregation sometimes seems to love America more than God. Now, in some ways, I find this not all that helpful. I wasn't asked to be part of this survey. But just to keep it real, if I had been, my vote might have pushed it from 53% to 54%. Because I've seen this. Sometimes, sometimes, people seem to love God, or love America, more than they love God. Third, last statistic. In 2016, 8 out of 10 white evangelical Christians voted for Donald Trump as president. I'm not commenting on that. I'm just stating it. That's been in the news ever since 2016. Here's the point. It's statistics and information such as the three I just mentioned that has led some people to dismiss the church, roll their eyes at Christianity and roll their eyes at the church and write the church off. And here's the thing. One expects this from the culture the wider culture. One expects this from people who do not profess to have faith. But increasingly, Christians are dismissing, rolling their eyes, and writing the church off for reasons indicated in the statistics I just mentioned. And I guess at some level I understand the impulse, but I just can't go there myself because of things Jesus said, such as, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So I hear these kinds of things out of the mouth of Jesus and the church has a kind of permanence to it. It seems to be part of God's game plan to redeem and rescue this world. In addition, every New Testament letter Paul and Peter and John and Mark and Luke wrote was to flawed and fickle and work in process Christians who comprised flawed and fickle work-in-process churches. So the big C church, that is all the people of God throughout history, and its many local expressions in settings like Oak Hills, is a collection of flawed and fickle and work-in-progress followers, Christians. And yet somehow, in some way, the church big and small, the church universal and local, is Jesus' plan to show the world his shalom And rescue the world. And over these past few months, as we have been isolated in terms of these Sunday gatherings, and as our life together as a congregation has been disrupted, I want you to know this, my hope for the church has rekindled. Because we as a local church have a God-given responsibility to manifest the shalom of God through our communal life together and demonstrate to this anti-shalom world that Jesus offers a better way to live and relate. This is our responsibility as followers of Jesus the King and as participants in His church to demonstrate through our communal life together the shalom of Jesus and the way that He invites us to live in His kingdom. So I proclaim for Oak Hills as one local church hope that we might stretch the boundaries of our comfort zone and continue to grow as an authentic, transforming, and risk-taking church. 
And I proclaim hope that we will manifest the wisdom and power and the shalom of God through our love for one another and through our willingness to walk into the hard things together and speak truth in love to each other instead of writing each other off. To be a church where the shalom of God shines and shimmers so the world sees what life can be like when Jesus is allowed to reign as king. And I proclaim hope on Oak Hills that we will increasingly welcome and love those who look and think and vote different than we do. And Jesus' prayer in John 17, that we may be brought to complete unity, would be realized in our little local fellowship at Oak Hills. Unity, he prays, so the world knows he is alive and real and at work in our midst. And so others can look in and see, tangibly see, his goodness, his reconciliation, and they can experience his flourishing, and they can see and experience the love between those who are different. Let's drop down one notch and get into a specific detail. See, as a local church at this time in history, we have a God-given responsibility and commission to bring shalom to the anti-shalom of racism. The issue is on our front door, all of our front doors. The issue is on the front door of local churches like Oak Hills. It's right here, right in front of us. Racism is anti-shalom. And God commands us to stand against it and perhaps even more to manifest racial righteousness and racial reconciliation in our local church and through our local church. What does that mean? That means that in our local body, among other things, when we come across somebody in some way who is manifesting what we think is anti-shalom as it relates to racism, we as members of this body do not have the luxury of going like this. We cannot do that if we're to be faithful followers of King Jesus because we have been brought together in this body and according to 1 Corinthians 12, the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Nor can the foot say to the hand, I don't need you. So when there are outbreaks of anti-shalom in those that we come to the communion table with, we have a responsibility in love, gently, graciously, hopefully, redemptively, to move toward those who think differently or who say differently. And if there is an issue of shalom at stake, we have an obligation under God to move toward them and to invite them into deeper conversation for the purposes of listening and mutual transformation in Christ. See, church is easy when we surround ourselves with those who look and think and act and believe and vote like us. But I ask you this question. What does Jesus' prayer for unity even mean in the context of a local fellowship where most people look and think and act and believe and vote like the next person? What does it even mean? It's a nice word. 
but it doesn't have any concrete expression. When we wall ourselves off from those who don't look, think, act, believe, or vote like us, we simply dull the shalom, the shine on our shalom. Church is tough, however, when we remember we are brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the process of ongoing conversion and we need each other to continue to convert. We need each other in order to inch closer to the glory Paul says will one day be revealed in me, in you, and in us as his people. We need each other to grow toward maturity in Christ. So if I roll my eyes or shake my head or dismiss you because you look or think or vote different than me, if I wall you off because you look, think, or vote different than me, then I'm dulling the shine in our collective shalom. I'm doing exactly what Paul says not to do in 1 Corinthians 12. I'm looking at the hand and me being afoot. I'm saying, I don't need that. That is not my brother. Or that is not my sister. Whereas if it actually is an issue of that is not my brother or sister because a brother or sister in Christ could not possibly think that way, then we have an obligation to walk toward the individual, say, can we have a difficult conversation about something that really matters? And who knows, but in the process of that conversation, one or the other's lack of faith might burst through. And the love we showed to have the conversation could be the beginning of their conversion. So we pull up a chair with our brother or our sister who differs from us, and face to face, we talk about our differences. We push each other. We challenge each other. We speak the truth to love, in love to each other. And we help further convert each other an inch toward glory. If I am demonstrating a thought or a word or a deed, or a social media presence, an attitude, or a presence that reeks of anti-shalom. And yet here we come to the communion table together, and you don't feel like you can talk to me about that. In fact, you feel like you can simply label me and dismiss me. But here we come to the communion table together, something, my friends, is dreadfully awry in such a scenario. Because we are brothers and sisters in King Jesus. So we pull up a chair. See, the power of King Jesus is made known more when he brings people who are different under his lordship. And they love each other. And they submit each other. And they speak truth to each other lovingly and gently. Because the more we in our differences are formed in Christ's likeness, the more we as this local church will shine and shimmer with the shalom of King Jesus and show the world who he is. Thirdly, hope for the nation. Reading from our Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yesterday was the 244th birthday of our nation, and I am thankful I live in the United States of America. I'm thankful for the men and the women who have or who are risking or who have sacrificed their lives to preserve freedom. I personally have experienced the values set forth in the Declaration of Independence throughout my lifetime. Freedom, I've experienced it. 
Equality, I know what that is. I've experienced it. And rights that cannot be taken from me. My rights have not been taken from me. So when I see our flag flying, I am thankful for the vision of those who founded our nation and for those who work and have given their lives and their energy to protect our freedom. But I have also listened to the stories of friends I have who are now white. They're Hispanic or they're black. And some of them have not always experienced freedom, equality, and unalienable rights, and they've not experienced these things simply because of the color of their skin. A long time after the Declaration of Independence was written and signed, Thomas Jefferson wrote this about the 4th of July. He wrote, For ourselves, let the annual return of this day forever refresh our recollection of these rights and an undiminished devotion to them. Such good words for us to think about right now, at this point in history, as the people of God. For refresh our recollection of these rights and an undiminished devotion to them. His words and recent events remind us once again that many in our nation, here's this word again, groan to experience the freedoms and the rights that others of us, like me, have experienced for our entire lives. And hope for our nation, whatever else it might mean, most certainly means all people being able to read the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence and say, I've experienced that. I've experienced this goodness. I've experienced freedom. I've experienced liberty. I've experienced my rights being my rights. So I simply want to say hope for our nation, real hope, authentic hope, is not going to be achieved by picking the right politician to lead us, though that's important. Real hope for our nation is not going to be achieved by lawmakers, Though that's important. Real hope for our nation is not going to be achieved by widespread economic success. Though that matters, I suppose, and has its place. Gary Black in his book, Preparing for Heaven, writes and puts it this way. There's nothing in all the cosmos of which God is more proud than human beings redeemed by his grace, devoting their lives through the moments and hours of their days to the collective good of humanity and creation, all to the glory of God. That is our privilege. That is a primary reason why human beings were created, to demonstrate to the universe the richness and amazing power God maintains and wields to bring creative goodness out of all things simply as a result of God's being. So hope for our nation begins and ends with a growing and deepening sense within our nation that genuine flourishing and wholeness cannot happen without God or apart from God. There is no shalom without God. Certainly, life can get better. Our country can get better without shalom. But there is no actual shalom without God. It's the Lord's Prayer, Manuel led us in earlier, more aptly called the Disciples' Prayer, because disciples pray it. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if you'll permit me, given this is the 4th of July, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in the United States of America 
as it is in heaven. This is the prayer we pray. This is what we seek. And as Christ's people, his church, at this time in history, we are the carriers of hope. We have to be the carriers of hope because our hope is based on reality in Christ. We have to be the caretakers of hope for our nation because we are to be his hands, feet, eyes, and ears, screaming and yelling about the need for our nation to return to God will drive our nation further away from God. But spirit-compelled action and prayer for the sake of God's shalom, for the glory of God, can infuse our broken country with God-drenched hope. And who is going to do this if not those who claim allegiance to Jesus and follow Him as their King? So may we be about our King's business even as we go about our business. Let's pray. We worship you on this day, Lord Jesus Christ, King Jesus, every square inch of creation will one day bow to you. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess, every rock will cry out, every tree will shake, every mountain will quake. Every ocean will roar. But Jesus Christ is King. The day is coming when such unspeakable glory will burst through such unspeakable curse and decay and all will be made right. Those who call you King and follow you as King will be made right. Creation restored. In this we hope. And we pray until such a day that we might be people who recognize this is not a game we are playing. This is not an afterthought. This is our vocation. This is our calling to be your people manifesting your goodness, displaying your shalom through our lives, our work, our words, our relationships, and through this local church called Oak Hills. And so we pray in the midst of all the chaos and the noise that our local body here would shine and shimmer with the shalom of King Jesus. We pray you will bring people who are different into our body. Those who look different. Those whose life experiences are different. Those who vote different. Those who are different ages, different races, different genders, different politics. 
And we pray that the unity you prayed for, for your church, would burst and bloom at this church. We pray in Christ's name.